Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 111 called Stephanie. I'm so excited to tell you guys about the sponsor for today's episode, Bios Fertility Institute. Bios is a different fertility clinic experience built on a foundation of patient-centered care, evidence-based medicine, and innovative technology. With clinic locations throughout the country and patients from around the globe, the Bios Fertility Institute team understands the challenges of infertility. Their physicians are board-certified and fellowship-trained reproductive endocrinologists and infertility specialists with a passion for helping patients realize their dreams of parenthood. As a patient, you'll notice the difference from your very first phone call to the team celebration of your positive pregnancy test and everything in between. Bios prides itself on its individualized patient plans that are best suited for your emotional, physical, and financial needs. The organization is committed to their patients and the fertility community in general, and to that end, offers great resources and education on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and other social media channels. Look for Vios Fertility, as well as a patient-centered blog on their website at viosfertility.com. To learn more about Vios Fertility Institute, take advantage of that high-quality, incredible education and fertility information, or to schedule your first appointment, visit viosfertility.com. That's V-I-O-S-F-E-R-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. Thanks, Vios. Guys, I'm so excited to tell you about Belly for Women Prenatal, which just hit the market. 92% of women don't get even close to the 450 milligrams of recommended choline they need in their diets. And in a recent study, most prenatals don't contain much of any choline at all. Belly's women's formula includes 400 milligrams of choline. Belly did things differently when they created their prenatal. They looked at the research and they evaluated what key ingredients were needed to help women prepare their bodies to be the healthiest they can to conceive, grow, and welcome new little lives. Belly is formulated with the right nutrients to help boost your fertility, increase egg quality, and support IVF to increase your chances of conception and a healthy pregnancy. Then once you're pregnant, Belly is gentler on the stomach to reduce the effects of morning sickness made with methylated B vitamins and the right amount of choline to support your baby's development. To get started with Belly, go to bellybaby.com and use code ALLY15 for 15% off your first month of either Belly Women or Belly Men. Again, that's code ALLY, A-L-I-1-5 at bellybaby.com. That's B-E-L-I-B-A-B-Y.com. Thanks, Belly. Okay, guys, it is National Infertility Awareness Week, and I'm so honored to have my next guest with us. It is Stephanie Carton, who is the epitome of a female badass entrepreneur. She is the CEO at Entrepreneista. She is the co-founder of Social Fly. And today, she's going to tell us all about her very complicated, often devastating fertility journey, which includes IVF and a very complicated pregnancy after a long road from being diagnosed with twin-to-twin transfusion. She was put on bed rest for 17 weeks, 11 of those weeks, which were in the hospital. So she's going to tell us all about that, how she maintained her hope throughout it all, and how she ended up with her daughter, Molly. So without further ado, this is Stephanie's infertility story.
Stephanie, it's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. We're going to kind of dive right in because I know you have a long story and I want to make sure you get to tell it the way you want to tell it. So let's start with, did you always want to be a mom? Oh my gosh. I have always wanted to be a mom. And actually I had said to my husband that my, my biggest fear in life was not being able to get pregnant and not being able to have a family. So when we experienced fertility issues, it was just so devastating and and traumatic because as far back as I can remember as a young child, I all I ever wanted to do was to babysit uh, little kids and to be around little kids. Like that was just my, my ultimate dream to be a mom and to have a family. So flashing forward pretty far to once you started to try, do you want to tell me about that piece of it? Or would you rather talk about, I know that you have a diagnosis of MS and how old were you when you were diagnosed with that? Do you want to talk about that piece? Sure. Yeah. I I was 27 years old when I was diagnosed with MS and it Mm -hmm. really just, it came out of nowhere. Actually, I have been having some pain in my neck and in my arm. And I woke up one morning and I thought that I actually had a pinched nerve. So I, my business partner, Courtney, who's my business partner in social fly and entrepreneurista, she actually had recently broken her arm and I called her and I was like, who is that orthopedic doctor that you went to? I think I have a pinched nerve. And Mm. she connected me with her doctor. I went that morning, was able to get an MRI and found out pretty quickly that I had lesions and they thought it was MS. And luckily I was able to get diagnosed quickly and have answers. And I say luckily, because, you know, you never want to have a life altering diagnosis, but I've learned when you have information and you're empowered and have a health diagnosis, at least then you can make decisions going forward. So I was grateful. At least we had answers and that Mm -hmm. we could make up a plan going forward. Mm -hmm. And what was the plan? Well, at that point I had started a different treatment than I'm on right now, a medication. And I'll definitely share, share more about this as, as I get into my, my fertility journey, because I've learned so much along the way, just about different types of treatment plans and what works best for my body might be different than what works best for, for others. But you know, the importance of the food that we're putting in our body. And for me, you know, trying to be gluten-free and dairy-free and not having inflammatory foods and exercising, there was a whole long list of, of lifestyle changes for sure. That definitely also came into play as we, as we experienced our infertility journey. Mm -hmm. So when, when you got the MS diagnosis, did they say that it was going to affect fertility at all, or does that come into it? You know, that wasn't really much of a discussion. I remember at the time with my doctor, I do remember that he had mentioned that, you know, most people or most women who have MS when they get pregnant, they actually are like protected during that time because of the hormones that you typically don't have a relapse or flare up that's called with MS while you're pregnant. But what can happen is once your hormones crash after you deliver, you can have a relapse or a flare up then. And Mm. actually that did end up happening to me, which I can share more about that when we, when we get to the the end of our story. So, um, I do remember being, you know, very scared at that point because I, my husband and I were not married at that point we were dating. And I remember Mm -hmm. thinking like, who, who is going to want to marry me or be with me with this, you know, severe diagnosis. And the more that I met other women, my age who also had a diagnosis of MS and they were living, you know, full lives. I actually connected with this woman, Marnie, who's now one of my best friends. She had done a video and, you know, it's actually, it's so interesting that we're talking about this first right now, because 
so much of my MS diagnosis and how I handled it by connecting with other women. I saw this woman, Marnie had posted this video with the MS society. Actually, she was interviewing Jack Osborne, who was recently diagnosed around the same same time that I was. Mm. And I looked up Marnie on the internet and I saw that she lived in New York. We were around the same age. We both worked in marketing and media. And I reached out to her and said, you know, I think we basically, I think we could be friends. Mm -hmm. Let's be best friends basically is what happened. Um, so we met for, for coffee and this is, oh my gosh, going back so many years now, we met for coffee and became like instant friends from, Mm -hmm. from that day forward. And then we started doing fundraisers together and we're just super close. And Marnie had started this Facebook group with these other women who were all around the same age, who also had been diagnosed with MS. So we have this private Facebook group that we've all been in for many years now, and we all help each other and problem solve and talk about either new medications or treatments that we're trying. We encourage each other when, you know, times get tough for, for one another. And yeah, it's actually very similar to how I handled my, my fertility journey. Yeah. And isn't it so interesting how it's the same as in the infertility community with me, at least when you have this instant bond with people who've gone through what you've gone through or who are going through it, it's just like you cut through all the bullshit. There's no, you know, like, it's just, you go from zero to 60 almost with people. Like I've made some of my best friends and it's so funny with the pandemic. I've never even met these people in person. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. I was... have made some of my closest friends to this day through Instagram and through Facebook groups from my right. MS journey and my fertility journey. And right. I say, with, I share this with everyone. I would not have gotten pregnant or stayed pregnant if it were not for the connections and community that I made through social media. Right. There's like that funny meme that went around recently that was like, you know, my deepest, darkest secrets, but you've never seen my legs. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about when you and your husband did get married and then were kids. Was that a part of the conversation right away? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had always talked about it. I knew, you know, we knew we both wanted to to have a family. It was just a matter of when and and timing. So right after we got married, uh, we decided to do early genetic testing before we started even trying on our on our own, just with my history of MS and some other health complications. So I went in, got blood work done, and then I still remember receiving receiving this call. I think it was like five thirty p.m. I was the only one in my office, and I get a call, and they're going over these genetic results with me and listing out, you know, all of these different things that I was a carrier for. And one of the things that they mentioned was something called fragile X and they shared, I was a pre-mutation carrier of fragile X. So it was then recommended that my husband, of course, also do genetic testing to see if he matched for anything. But the main issue was that with fragile X, it's only passed down through the mom. Mm -hmm. It's not one of the results where there has to be a match between both mom and dad. So at that point, it was recommended that we meet with a fertility specialist. And I had done very little research on fertility, on IVF treatments. At that point, I just... I knew one friend who had done IVF. So I just reached out to her and asked about, you know, what doctor she went to, because I knew she was pregnant with her second child at the time. And mm-hmm. to me, that looks like success. And that's mm-hmm. all that, that ultimately I was looking for at the time. So I went to that doctor and I remember that first appointment, you know, he started sharing a little bit about IVF and fertility treatments and why, you know, to, in my case, because of this genetic issue to do IVF, because then we could do the testing of the mm-hmm. embryos to be sure they didn't have the um, fragile X mutation. Right. 
So after that appointment, you know, I remember thinking like, I really don't want to do this. If I don't have to, I reached out to the genetic counselor and they recommended additional testing to really understand, you know, what was the percent chance that this could be passed on. And when we found out it was a very, very low percentage, I thought, okay, let's at least try on our own for a year to get pregnant. And you know, let's see what happens. If we do, we can always do testing once I am pregnant. Mm -hmm. So at no point did the fertility doctor or my OB or anyone recommend any type of initial like fertility testing. Mm -hmm. It was all just about, okay, should we do IVF or not because of this genetic issue? Okay. So we basically spent an entire year trying to get pregnant on our own. I knew nothing about you know, trying to get pregnant or tracking, you know, Mm -hmm. ovulation or anything that should just be like, you know, information that your OBs are sharing with you or information that you learn when you're younger. Like, I feel like maybe now more so that information is out there, but at least a few years ago, it was just not, this is so common with all of all of the women in our community. It's so, so common that just the reproductive health education that people received was so lacking and, you know, it's just kind of the basics, like you'll get your period, don't get pregnant, it, you know, it's easy yeah. to get pregnant and boom, but it's, it's obviously so much more nuanced and more complicated than that. And I hope it's changing. I think with doctors who are on TikTok and, you know, reaching the younger women and younger men that way and going on Instagram and talking about stuff is so beneficial. And I, I do think people know more now, but still there yeah. needs to be like a reform or something for sure. Oh my gosh. I mean, there has to be otherwise, you know, for me, I'm like, I wasted so much time and money and emotional energy. And that's why I, you know, love being able to share my story so I can help others. And I always offer to, you know, help and and counsel anyone who's even thinking about trying to get pregnant before they even, you know, may or may not come across with any issues. Like I share with them, like, these are some of the questions to ask your OB. Here's different tests that you could do to just know up front to have answers and information. Because Mm -hmm. for me, like the most frustrating, one of the most frustrating parts of my infertility journey is just how much time and money was just wasted by Mm -hmm. not knowing all of this information up front. Exactly. Yep. So, oh my goodness, what happened next? Yeah. Um, What'd you guys do next? (laughs) So we spent a year, a wasted year, and then decided to make an appointment a year later with that same doctor. Again, still at this point, I had done no research on fertility clinics or specialists or Mm -hmm. what I, I didn't know any of the information that I know now from going through everything. I went back to that same doctor because again, at that point, I still only knew this one friend who had been to this uh, specific practice. So I go back to this doctor and I remember sitting in the chairs in his office and he's looked at us and it was almost like he like laughed at us like, Oh, you're back. Like he knew we'd be back there. Mm. And I remember in that moment feeling so uncomfortable. And when we left, my husband was like, Stephanie, we can't stay going to this doctor. Like that's ridiculous the way he treated us. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I was so desperate to just have someone be able to help us have our family because that's all I wanted. And again, in my head, I'm like, well, he helped my friend get pregnant. Like he can help us. Like I had him built up on this pedestal. Like he's our answer. Like he will be the person to help us have our family. So, you know, at that appointment, he did do an ultrasound and was like, oh, it looks like you might have a polyp. This could be why you're not getting pregnant. I'm going to send you for an HSG test. Mm -hmm. So he sends me for this HSG test. And I'm sure you've talked about this on your, on your podcast with other guests before. Oh my Mm -hmm. goodness. I was not warned about 
what that test was. He literally just like gave me a prescription for this HSG test with no explanation. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, that was, I have two like most painful experiences of my life. That was one of them. Wow. Yeah. And I, I felt like I was going to die during that procedure. It was so painful. And then after the procedure, I had a lot of bleeding and ended up getting an infection again, like red flag, right. You know, you need to find a doctor who you genuinely feel comfortable with, who you can talk to and who is responsive. Right. And then the other crazy part, like I still wasn't, again, I'm still in this desperation mode. They're still telling me a few days later to come in for my first IUI, even though the HSG test definitely showed a polyp there and I had an infection, like nothing made sense. Right. Right. Yeah. So I still like, I'm not listening to my gut at this point. I still go in, I go do this IUI, nothing's making sense, but I'm just kind of on autopilot following, following what they're saying. And then fast forward, you know, two weeks later, you know, we did the IUI. I'm still not, I'm still not feeling well. And then I get my period and I'm hysterical. Mm -hmm. And at that point I knew I'm like, I cannot go back to this doctor at this practice. Not only was it a complete factory, but I didn't feel comfortable with the doctor. I was being passed around from like nurse to nurse there. There was Mm -hmm. no personal connection and I felt like no one was listening to me. And Mm -hmm. it was at this point in my fertility journey, like I knew like I needed to take back control of like what I know how to do in my life, which is like make stuff happen and run things. And I was just putting that in the hands of, of others and just listening and following without following up and doing my research. Like I typically do with everything else in my life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was just because of my like one, like desperation and just being so fragile when, when you're going through something like this, because all, like I said, all I wanted was to be a mom. And I just believed that the, all of these people in these practices just knew better than, than I did. And right. I They're the experts. Yeah. Body. Yeah. And stakes are so high, you know, and emotions are running high. So I get yes. it. Yeah. So at that point, a few people had mentioned a different practice in New York and a different doctor. And when this name kept coming up over and over again, and then I did start to do research, I made an appointment with a different fertility doctor and we went to see him definitely felt like we clicked with him right away. I felt pretty comfortable asking him questions. And when he, when I shared with him, you know, our lab reports, and then I had a polyp, he's like, it does not make sense for me to do any treatments with you until we remove this polyp. So we mm-hmm. scheduled a hysteroscopy, I believe uh-huh. it was called. And then he went in and did the polyp removal procedure And I remember waking up from this procedure and my doctor is there and he shares with me, he said, look, you know, I went in to remove one polyp, but your entire uterine lining was covered in polyps. And he showed me the photos and he said, like, this is probably why you haven't been getting pregnant at this point now. Like, um, you know, very scared. Like, why do I have all of these polyps? Like, what does this mean? Like, do I, could I have cancer? Like, could there be something else that's going on? So I was extremely nervous. He let me know that they did a biopsy and we would receive the results of the biopsy within the next week. So again, I remember, you know, being at work and this, you know, started, you know, waiting for all of those phone calls. And I know so many women who are going through infertility can just relate to like staring at your phone, waiting for your phone to ring for every single type of result. Yes. 
So I, I get this call and he said, you know, look, the results came back and you have something called chronic endometritis, mm-hmm. not to be confused with endometriosis. Endometritis is an infection of the uterine lining. Mm-hmm. So we started, he put me on antibiotics for 10 days and um, he said, let's do the antibiotics. And then why don't we start with doing an IUI to see if that works? Because now your lining is clear and hopefully, you know, an IUI will work. Cause I was trying to avoid at all costs having to do IVF if we didn't have to. Yeah. And I wanted to do stuff as, as, you know, least invasive as possible. So mm-hmm. we do that first IUI I had been on the antibiotics and then the dreaded two week wait goes by. And right. then I'm taking pregnancy tests from like day eight on every single day at home. You were, I can't, I can't wait. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, I'm one yeah. of those, I'm one of those ones. That's very common. And, I was not an early tester, but so many people do. And I get it. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm like the biggest, biggest mm-hmm. early tester. I can't tell you how many pregnancy tests I purchased over uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that time. And, um, you know, I, then I get my period. So then we go in, meet with the doctor again, and we say, let's try another IUI. And this now goes on for a couple of months, you know, disappointment after disappointment. And I remember saying to my doctor, like, do you think I could still have this chronic endometritis? Like maybe the antibiotics didn't work. And he's like, no, no, no. Like you did the antibiotics. It's definitely clear. So then I like start on my own, like real research journey, because again, I had just, he said 10 days of antibiotics, it'll clear the infection. And I just listened Mm -hmm. and didn't investigate. And again, like a big learning from my experience, you know, trust, but verify, like you want to have trust in your doctor. You want to believe everything that they share, but verify this information, like do Mm -hmm. research, you know, find out there's so many women that are going through similar things, find out what worked for them. It doesn't mean it will work for you, but find out, get as much information as possible because then you're armed with this information and can have a conversation and discussion with your doctor and, and make the best decision. So Mm -hmm. I hadn't done that at this point. Now, I think we were on the fifth IUI that had failed. And I'm like, look, I really think I still have this infection. My body has always been, you know, it's been tough to clear infections in the past. Like, can we please make sure that I don't still have this infection? He said, look, let's, let's move to IVF. And when we do the egg retrieval, we'll do a biopsy then. So that's what we ended up doing. So fast forward, we start going through our IVF journey. And actually it was at this point, um, right before that I had finally started publicly sharing on Instagram and on social, what was going on and, and sharing my fertility journey. I had met Andrea Siertash, who has the platform Pregnantish. We met mm-hmm. through a Facebook group. And I remember sharing with her, I said, you know, my MS diagnosis was definitely really tough and really hard for me, but going through infertility for me personally has just been so much worse. Like mm-hmm. it has been the hardest thing that I have ever experienced or gone through. And she, and Andrea had said, you know, I think if you share your story and your journey and what you're going through with our platform, you'll help so many people and you'll be able to connect with so many people as well. Right. So I agreed to, you know, share this piece on her platform. And I remember that day that, you know, she told me the piece was live. It was like a weight had been lifted off of me. Like mm-hmm. I could finally speak out and share what I, we had been going through all these months. Right. And just the connections that I had started making through social media, I then shared what was going on with this chronic endometritis situation. And after we did that egg retrieval, found out, yes, I was right. We still had it. And Mm -hmm. I was connected to this other woman who was going through the same thing. 
And we started doing all this research together and looking up journal articles. And her father was also a physician. And we found, you know, a specific treatment that worked for a lot of women through a research study. And I went to my doctor and I said, this is the, these are the antibiotics I want. This is how long I want them for. And he agreed to put me on them. And before I was willing to do our first transfer, I said, I need to do a repeat biopsy to be sure that this worked. And I don't have the endometritis because I didn't want to waste any of our precious embryos. So, right. You've been through so much that you just discussed. How is it affecting you? And how is it affecting your relationship with your husband? You know, I've been really vocal about how it almost broke me and Vince. It really did. It, and yeah, thankfully we're still together, but it was so rough. Oh my gosh. It was very, very hard. And I think the hardest part for me was actually watching Greg just feel so helpless. Like there wasn't much that he could do. And mm-hmm. I would share with him, you know, I just need you to give me a hug or just, you know, tell me things are going to be okay. Because, you know, it was every month, just the frustration and the tears and, you know, every single day revolved around what day in the cycle it was, what doctor appointment we were going to. And it was exhausting, like all while trying to, to run multiple businesses Mm -hmm. and just, you know, try to also enjoy life. Like I, I don't know. It's like looking back at that time, I'm like, how did I do all of that? Right. (laughs) You go on, you know, this like autopilot, um, problem solving mode. And for me, like I'm such a problem solver. So I was able to just manage all of these moving parts. And I was, you know, grateful that I run my own business and I'm able to create my own schedule. But I remember thinking during this time, like so many women who are, have other occupations or teachers and you have to be in so early and how you go to all these appointments when you need to be, you know, at your school at eight in the morning. Like I had a little flexibility, but Right. My gosh, it was just such, such a hard time. And it yeah. it only got more complicated once we, once we got pregnant because we had a very complicated pregnancy too. Uh-huh. Okay. Do you want to talk about that part next? Oh goodness. Yes. So, uh, fast forward, I will share that I, I ended up also through social media, getting connected to other women who had recommended I go to another doctor to just look at uh, an immune protocol for my transfer because Mm -hmm. of my MS and other issues that I had going on. So I did end up finding that doctor who did some additional blood work and found out that I was a, I had the MTHFR mutation and a couple of other things that he wanted to put me on a specific protocol for my transfer and through our pregnancy, once we got pregnant, so we could stay pregnant. So I was very grateful for that connection because I learned a lot through all of those tests and Mm -hmm. was definitely put on the right protocol because we did our first transfer. It was October 24th of 2018. And we Mm -hmm. put in one embryo and a few days after the transfer, I just had this feeling that I was pregnant like I always say, trust your body, listen to your body, listen to what your body is telling you. Like I, I just knew it worked. Mm -hmm. So four days after my transfer, I took a pregnancy test. I told you early tester. Right. And we had like a blazing positive Mm -hmm. test four days after my transfer. So at that point I said to my husband, I was like, I have this feeling the embryo split. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I'm telling you, I just have this feeling. Yeah. And fast forward. I was right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Our embryo had split. So we found out a few weeks in that we were going to be expecting identical twin girls. Mm -hmm. How did that feel? So actually it was during an ultrasound, the tech was doing the scan and 
I saw, I was, you know, at this point I felt like I could read these ultrasounds for just from all of the, from all of the ones that I had over the, the years. Yeah. And I saw what she was doing and I saw two sacks mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I think I'm right. But I didn't say anything to my husband until the doctor said something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when she came in and said, you know, look, it looks like the embryo split. It's still very early. At that point, there was just a heartbeat for one of our girls. The other heartbeat wasn't detected yet. So mm-hmm. she said, you know, she was telling us all about just, you know, the different risks of multiple pregnancies and that there could be, um, it could be a vanishing twin. Like we didn't have all the information then. Mm-hmm. And then actually the day after that ultrasound, I was at a business meeting and I had started gushing blood mm-hmm. and I ran to the bathroom and I called our doctor at that point and he told us to come in right away. And it's actually interesting. I had already switched to the, the high-risk OB. We were going to see this woman. And then I, when that happened, I actually called my fertility doctor. Also his office was closer. So we headed back up there because at this point I was only, I forget the number nine or 10 weeks pregnant. It was still very early eight weeks pregnant. I can't remember, but it was Mm -hmm. still pretty early and I'm trying to get to his office and basically a blizzard had just started in New York city as I'm trying to get there. So I'm like, it was like out of a movie, I'm running through snow, trying to get there, you know, just blood is everywhere. Uh, And I finally, finally get to his office and it took what, by the time I was there was like the longest 30 minutes of my life waiting for him to come in to do the ultrasound. And when he came in, there were two heartbeats and it was like the biggest relief of, of my life Mm -hmm. because I, I mean, I was, I thought we were miscarrying at that point. So yeah. I unfortunately went on to have a lot of bleeding in the first trimester and learned mm-hmm. that that can be more common in IVF pregnancies. Yes. Um, but I didn't know that at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, it was terrifying. It is terrifying. Just any sort of bleeding is so terrifying. So, wow. I can only imagine you running through the snow, the blizzard and all it that. Was- and- not it knowing what's going to happen, you know? And I, I couldn't get a cab. It was like, it was one of those. Right. I had a lot of worse moments through our fertility journey and pregnancy. That was, that was definitely up there. There was about a three week period during my pregnancy that it was uneventful. And I remember those three weeks, they were amazing. Totally. <laughs> the end of December. And, and then at 16 and a half weeks pregnant, we went, and I had now switched to a high risk to go be at Columbia Presbyterian because we knew we were going to be a high risk twin pregnancy. And we were referred to a doctor there because my fertility doctor had said, you know, God forbid anything happens in your pregnancy. Like this is where you want to be. They have the best twin twin specialists there. So you might as well be going to him from the beginning. So we mm-hmm. went to um, this high risk OB at Columbia And at our 16 and a half week appointment, we were doing the early anatomy scan and the tech was doing the scan and it was taking a very, very, very long time. And then all of a sudden my, my OB walks into the room and he actually wasn't supposed to be there that day. And I saw the look on his face and I just knew something was, was wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, he shared with us that he's like, you know what, let me, let me just come in and do the scan. I want to look at a few things. So he was scanning me and I remember just, I'm just like tearing up and it was, I I was just so scared because I knew something wasn't right. And it was at that point he shared, you know, it looks like you do have the early signs of twin to twin transfusion. Why don't you get dressed, come into my office and I'm going to share more with you about what Mm -hmm. some of the options are right now. Mm -hmm. 
And in that moment, it was, I mean, gosh, I talk about like all of these horrible moments from my experience, but it was just like someone, you know, just threw a ton of bricks on my heart. It was so horrible. And the, the crazy part was when he said this, that, so this was on a Tuesday, it was on a Monday or Tuesday, because the Saturday before this happened, my grandmother, unfortunately passed away. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I, the next day I was home by myself because my husband was actually at work on that Sunday and I was home and I was writing, writing something for my grandmother for her funeral. And I had the TV on low and I heard this commercial for Columbia Presbyterian. And it was this woman talking about twin to twin transfusion and that her doctor who was my doctor had saved her baby's lives. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to have heard this commercial. Wow. And this is before my, this diagnosis. So, you know, my doctor is sharing this with me and in my head, I'm thinking, okay, it's okay. He's, he can save my babies. Like it's going to be okay. And I kept telling myself this over and over again, because I had just heard this commercial about my doctor who I was with in that moment. So that's so cool. We go like that's the universe intervening right there, you know? I had sent um, a text. My husband was at work that day. And to my mother-in-law, I took a video of that commercial and recorded it on my phone and texted it to my mother-in-law and to my husband. And I said, look, this commercial is about our doctor. God forbid we have any issues. Like at least we're going to the best. And I had sent that to them on Sunday, right after I, I had seen that commercial. Wow. So, you know, when we get this news two days later, we're in the, his office and I keep, and I'm bawling and I'm saying to him, I saw the commercial. I know you can save them. I saw the commercial. I know Aww. you can save them. And that's what yeah. I'm saying to him. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. So he's giving us all, all of these options and, and telling us, you know, different probabilities and, you know, the options to have this surgery to try to save both of them. You can do a procedure to terminate one of your babies to try to save the other baby, like all of these horrible things you never want to hear that no one should ever have to be in a position to make these choices. And unfortunately, you know, uh, I believe the number don't quote me on the exact number, but I believe it's like 10 to 15% of identical twin pregnancies develop twin to twin transfusion. I believe that's the stats, but you know, I say trust, but verify. So verify that information. (laughs) Right. Yes, um, I, I believe, love that trust but verify. Yes, so always good. yes, trust but verify. I believe it's like 10 to 15% of identical twin pregnancies do have this complication and there is a specific procedure that you can do, this laser ablation procedure to basically corduroys the blood vessels where they're sharing this blood supply to try to save both of the babies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've something I've also learned in in business mostly that I took through with my fertility journey is never make a permanent or very big decision on the spot. Mm-hmm. So, because my doctor was basically giving us the choice, even in that moment, like I could do this procedure right now called an RFA to terminate one of the babies to try to save the others. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, oh my God, I need to, we have to think about this and like, yeah. who can I talk to? Right. You know, what do I do? So, you know, I immediately, of course, went to Facebook and looked up twin to twin transfusion and found the Facebook group and joined that Facebook group and posted what was going on. I then got connected to this woman, Carolyn, who had my same doctor who had, you know, her two twins were, were born alive and okay. She had a very complicated um, pregnancy and situation with them as well, but we got connected. She got on the phone with me, helped counsel me through everything. And then the even crazier part 
one of our business mentors said, Hey Steph, do you know so-and-so? Um, she's actually, um, is my book, my book publisher. She's the one in the, the Columbia commercial. If you've seen it about twin to twin transfusion, mm. our business mentor connected me with a wonderful woman who shared her story in that. Commercial. Oh my gosh. How cool. And all within like 48 hours, like yeah. just the power of, of social media. So, and that's how, why I love women lifting each other up and helping each yes. other out too. Like it's so yes. important. Yes. Yes. So, you know, now I'm in this, you know, twin to twin group. I'm learning all of this information. We then go back for another appointment on, on Friday to see how things were looking. And he said, again, you know, we need to do this procedure. If we're going to do it, we need to do it soon. And, or we need to, you know, do, do the RFA. And like, we had to make some choice Mm -hmm. and I could not decide that, like make that decision for my babies to, mm-hmm. to choose to, to terminate one of our babies to, to maybe save the other. Like you, there's no guarantees with anything. Like I right. felt that was up for my, for my babies to decide if they, if they could make it, that mm-hmm. was not my choice. And I totally mm-hmm. understand like for people who are in this situation, everyone has to do what feels best for them yeah. because it, it is such a personal choice and decision that I, like I said, like no one should ever have to be in this position to make such a hard a hard choice. It, it's, you know, it's terrifying and scary. And after being through this whole fertility journey, like how could this be happening to us? But it was, right. Right. and, you know, we, we decided at that appointment on that Friday that we would schedule the procedure for that Monday, because again, like I just was so scared. I was so scared to make any, any decision, no matter what, but we, mm-hmm. at that appointment, we said, let's wait till, till Monday for the procedure that gave us the weekend to like prepare for everything. And he said, and I said, you know, do you think we can make it till Monday? Because I had learned through this Facebook group, like the farther along you are, the better chance the procedure will go well, Mm -hmm. because it was something with the placenta, like the farther along you are, you know, you really don't want to, to rupture from the procedure, which, which unfortunately did end up happening anyways. But that I remember we got home from that appointment and within two hours, I'm like, did we make the wrong choice? Should we have just gone ahead with the procedure today? Like, what mm-hmm. if, what if they don't make it until, until Monday, I even called my doctor and said, can we come back and do the procedure now? And at that, that point it was too late. So I knew I just had to focus on just getting ready for that Monday. So mm-hmm. we go in and we go in on Monday and, um, get ready for this procedure. And it was, it was very traumatic, the procedure and the whole day, and without sharing all of the details, we finally make it to have the procedure. And at the end of the, the procedure, we did still have two, two heartbeats. Amazing. So we were definitely very encouraged. But the next morning we went for the follow-up ultrasound and you stay overnight after this procedure. And we went up for that scan. And and, and I saw right away when they put the, the ultrasounds up, like I could see my, for myself, there was just mm-hmm. one heartbeat. I, mm-hmm. I knew when they, they told us. And mm-hmm. the crazy part, it was like, you know, they were like, okay, basically like, just go home. Like we just lost one of our babies and there wasn't like this follow-up to like talk with a right, social like worker support. or to have a whole plan. And right. you know, that's, that's also, you know, another learning from, from this about the importance of, you know, having support. And especially when you go through something like this and the loss of a baby and, and a twin while you're still pregnant, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just so hard. And, you know, I found another Facebook group. <laughs> yes. I love it. You're such a connector. You know, it's so cool. I needed to find other people who are going through something similar so I could learn because I had Mm -hmm. learned through my whole fertility journey that 
this, this was the way to get as much information as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing I'll share is that I also learned actually through a therapist that I had worked with during this time, you know, but before, during my fertility journey, I started with a new therapist and it was, you know, these doctors are only doing the best they can do with the knowledge and information that they have. And sometimes doctors don't have all of the knowledge or all of the information. You have to go find some of that. And if you're working with a doctor who is open to hearing that and learning new things, like that's great. Like that's the type of doctor that you want to be with someone who's open-minded to learning. Because let me tell you, I did end up teaching this doctor so much about, about PPROM, which is what ended up happening because two days after the procedure, I did rupture. I started leaking amniotic fluid mm-hmm. and we of course text my doctor and we rushed to the hospital and we thought initially that the pregnancy was over. I was ruptured at this point. I was 17 and a half weeks pregnant, leaking amniotic fluid. We thought I was going to go into early labor by what they were telling me in the, in the emergency room. And it was so traumatic and, you know, I'm obviously hysterical thinking like, how, how, how can all of this be happening? And I remember I'm sitting there in the hospital and I'm posting in this TTTS group that I ruptured and they told me uh, it had happened to other people. They told me to join the PPROM group, which is preterm premature rupture of your membranes. Right. So now I join this PPROM group and I end up connecting with this other woman who is inpatient in the hospital that I'm in. Oh my God. And she had the same thing happen and we end up connecting and she's, you know, walking me through everything as well. And after 48 hours, you know, I had not gone into early labor and I learned through this group, you can actually stay pregnant when you're ruptured. Mm -hmm. And even though the doctors in the hospital were telling me when you rupture this early in pregnancy, they were telling me your baby's lungs will never develop. She won't really have a chance of survival. Even if you do stay pregnant, if you do stay pregnant, it's just super risky because you can get an infection and die and all these horrible things. But then I'm talking with all these women in this Facebook group who tell me if there's a heartbeat, there's hope. And there's all these things that you can do to give yourself the best chance to stay pregnant and for your baby to be okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing all of these conflicting things. And then I take all this information back to my doctor and he's like, look, (laughs) you can try to stay pregnant. He's, but you know, every week, week after week, he's, you know, giving me the option to still end the pregnancy. Wow. And I just knew in my heart that if we just kept going and we held on to hope, I just believed that Molly would be okay. Mm -hmm. And it, for me personally, I felt it wasn't up to me to make that choice. It was up to, to Molly to decide if, if she was going to, if she was going to make it. So at 23 and a half weeks, we went inpatient into the hospital at Columbia Presbyterian. And I think I'd mentioned I was part of the neonatal comfort care program. So we had great access to an incredible neonatologist and a social worker and other team members who were checking on me every single day. And, you know, the reason we, we went inpatient at 23 and a half weeks was because if I did go into early labor, at least we were at the hospital and um, would have direct access to, to the NICU. So we could do whatever, whatever we needed to do to, to give Molly the best chance. So Mm -hmm. I spent 11 weeks in the hospital and that was the goal. And I was induced at 30, right right at 34 weeks. Mm -hmm. And I still remember, you know, those days leading up to, to the delivery and our, our scheduled 
our scheduled induction, just being so excited that we finally made it to the end. And I remember like people would ask like, if I was nervous because we didn't know, you know, what, what the outcome would be ultimately. But Mm -hmm. I just believed so much in my heart that after everything we had done, everything we had tried that she was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And on May 30th at 5.44 p.m., Molly- It's a really good birthday, by the way. Yes. (laughs) Happy birthday to you too. (laughs) Gemini's. Yes. Our our little Molly Hope was born and- Molly Hope. Molly Hope. And- I just got the chills. That was, that was actually always going to be her name even before any of this. So I, I always tell people just, just have hope, just keep believing when she mm-hmm. was born, they put her on my chest and I, you know, I feel like most moms like just are waiting for that moment to have your baby on your chest and you're mm-hmm. holding them. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't even, I didn't even want to hold her. I just wanted them to take her to be sure she was breathing and that she was okay. And we right. have a video, a video of, of this too. They, they put her on my chest and I just keep kept saying like, is she okay? Is she breathing? Is she okay? Is she breathing? And they, they kept telling me she's perfect. She's perfect. She's perfect. And I'm crying. And oh. I was like trying to just hand Molly to them to take her so they could just make sure that she was okay. Cause that that's all that I, all that I cared about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, she had a little bit of breathing assistance for the first two weeks in the NICU because she was early. She was 34 weeks, but she did not have, you know, any of that, you know, long-term lung damage or, or problems mm-hmm. with lung development that, that the doctors had thought. And, Molly and Torben, which is my friend Caitlin's baby, they were born within three days of each other, and they both went home together on the same day from the NICU, and it was the most incredible, incredible moment. So, look, we had a very long and complicated journey with our fertility and then our very complicated pregnancy, but I share this story because there's hope. Right. I know it's not easy, but there absolutely is hope. All right, friends, thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Stephanie for sharing her incredible story and her great takeaways about advocacy and connecting on social media. So speaking of social media, guys, definitely check out Fertility Rally. We're at fertilityrally.com. We are a community, a membership, and just a source for great content and curated events. We would love to meet you and have you join our family. So check us out on Instagram at Fertility Rally. And you can also check me out at Infertile AF Stories on IG. And I will talk to you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks.